Good morning once again. Take your Bibles and uh, open to Romans chapter 9, if you would, please. We will be back in Romans chapter 9 uh, today, and then uh, I'm going to have um, a couple of weeks off where I won't be preaching, and Woody will be preaching for the next uh, three weeks. And so it will, uh, I think he's preaching from the Psalms. And so um, I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, but today we're going to be back in Romans and trying to address a very important passage for us. So let's uh, read together. I want, to, uh, I want to begin in verse 6, and we're going to read all the way through verse 18 for today's reading. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning thankful that you have made yourself known to us, We look in creation and we see your handiwork. And we know within ourselves that you exist and are our creator. And yet you didn't leave it at that. You also made known to us yourself and who we are and who you are and how we can know you in your word that you have communicated to us. And ultimately, we are grateful for the fact that you have communicated yourself to us most fully in your Son, revealing to us the character and nature and acts of God. We rejoice in Christ. We rejoice that we get to be in Him. And Father, this morning as we turn to Romans chapter 9 that talks about topics that may be difficult to understand or perhaps difficult to swallow, difficult to see what is meant here. 
and fit it with our reality that we see around us. We ask that you would work in our hearts and in our minds. Help us to be engaged with what we have right here, not, not distracted by the events of our lives, not distracted by the things that concern us or that are upcoming or past that we stress about, but help us to be right here engaged in this text to hear from you. Father, we confess that we are small and short-sighted and fallen, and we require a word from you. And so we ask that you would give us that word from this passage even today. Thank you that you speak to us in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we were in Russia in 1996 to 97, my wife and I were were there for that one year, and many of you remember that. Many of you supported us going there. And we were told at that time, since we were only going to be there for a year, and Russian is a very large language, they said, don't worry about learning the case system. And, well, they said generally, don't worry about really learning the language too much, just use interpreters. But they said, if you do try and fiddle with the language, don't worry about the case system, which to English speakers doesn't make a lot of sense. We don't really use cases all that much in English. But in Russian, the case system is is vital to understanding. The case system means that a noun will change its form based upon what role it's playing in the sentence. So we don't have a lot of examples of that, but one example in English would be the difference between he and him. He plays a particular role in a sentence when it's the subject, for example, and him plays a different role in a sentence, for example, when it's an object. Or we could have the word his, which is, shows possession. So there's an example in English where we have a case system. And when you hear a child talk or someone who's learning English and they don't know the difference between he and him and his, the sentence comes off a little funny, right? You can usually piece together uh, what they mean. But in Russian, every noun that you use goes through a similar process. And actually, there are far more cases than that in Russian. And so when we were told, hey, you know, you can fiddle with the language and learn enough to get around, but don't worry about the case system, how hamstrung were we? Well, we we picked up some stuff, and usually it's just memorized phrases, and you remember where to stick it in in your conversation, hopefully. But we didn't understand how the language worked, and I thought, well, this case system is a giant mystery, and I guess I'm never going to learn it. We moved back to the States, and I went to school at Moody and began to take Greek. And my first semester of Greek, turns out Greek uses the case system, very similar to Russian. And so I thought, oh, no, I'm never going to learn Greek. This case system is going to be impossible. And so about, I don't know, the third week or something of class, the professor stood there and explained to us how cases work, the he and the him and the his and other examples. But for the whole language, he said, well, this is this case and how it's used in that case. He explained it and he took all of 45 minutes to do it. No big deal. And you know what was interesting is that as a result of his explanation of the case system, my Russian instantly got better. I wasn't in Russia anymore. 
And I wasn't speaking Russian with anybody at all. But suddenly I had the categories. Suddenly I had the definitions. And now remembering conversations and things where people would correct me and stuff like that made sense. And so after his 45-minute explanation of how cases worked in Greek, my Russian got better. Sometimes we have to have proper categories. Sometimes we have to have a proper foundation and a proper understanding of a particular subject or an aspect of a subject, or else we will get nowhere in that subject. And that was the case with my Russian. And so when I returned to Russia years later, the case system made sense. I had it. I understood it because of Greek. And I needed that foundation in order to be able to learn that language. And I had floundered for an entire year trying to learn the language without that important piece. Well, why do I bring that up? Not, not just because I enjoy languages, but because we're coming to a subject today that requires us to have an appropriate definition in place. It is foundational. This, this definition or even this category is foundational for us to have in place or we will not understand what Paul is saying. We will flounder just as I did in trying to learn Russian. The question that Paul raises here in verse 14 is, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? Having talked about these two families, having talked about Isaac, not Ishmael, having talked about Jacob, not Esau, and how God had made those selections, He had made those decisions beforehand, how He made even that strong statement that we read there in verse 13, that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Having made such a strong statement, Paul then asks the question, so does that mean that God is unjust? Paul, if what you're saying is true, wouldn't that make God guilty of injustice? And that's the question he wants to ask. In other words, is God unfair? Is God unfair? And that raises the question. This is the category. This is the the word, the concept that must be defined appropriately or we will make no headway in understanding the subject. And that is, what is justice? What is justice? If we are fuzzy... On the concept of justice, we will be worse than fuzzy in trying to understand what Paul means. And worse than that, we will be worse than fuzzy in trying to understand what the gospel means and how the gospel works. So what is justice? Well, put simply, the biblical notion of justice is rendering to someone what is his due and not depriving him of what belongs to him. Giving to someone what is his due, and not depriving him of what belongs to him. And this has broad applications. In the criminal or in the penal sense, justice for someone who commits a crime is a payment of a penalty that is appropriate to that crime. Regardless of who the offending party is, or regardless of who the offended party is. So, for example, it would be unjust 
for you to be caught speeding by five miles an hour and be sent to prison. The punishment just doesn't fit the crime. That's crazy, right? That would be unjust. And if you receive one penalty for speeding, you know, getting caught speeding five miles over and you receive one penalty because of your last name or what you look like or the kind of car you're driving or whatever, and someone else also caught speeding five miles an hour over and they have a different last name or they look differently or they drive a different kind of car and you, you receive different penalties, that's injustice, right? So the, the penalty should fit the crime regardless of who the offending party is or regardless of who the offended party is. We see this example in uh, Leviticus 19 and verse 5 where we are told, you shall do no injustice in court. Now this is interesting. You shall not be partial to the poor. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Meaning you don't render a verdict based upon who the defendant is. You render a verdict based upon the crime or the situation. Not who the person is. And there in that case, we we normally think, you know, the Bible talks about supporting the poor and whatnot. And he's saying, well, actually in in a court system... You don't give partiality to the poor just because they're poor. I will let you off. Or will reduce your fine or whatever. Nor do you prefer the rich. Well, this guy can pay me. He can bribe me. Or it'll be nice to have him as my friend, so I'm going to let him off. Or so I'm going to give him a, a, a lighter sentence or whatever. We don't make judgment based upon the person being judged. The person on whom we are rendering justice. So that's in the kind of a criminal penal sense. But justice also affects private property and ownership of possessions. Justice in that sense would mean protecting a person's right to own and to keep his own property. Meaning you don't take away what is his. That would be unjust for you to do that. Jeremiah 22 and verse 13 is an example. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. So here you have a person who is getting wealthy by not paying his employees. The employee works He does the job. He should receive his wages. He should receive what is his. And if he does not receive what is his, he did the work, he should get paid. And if he does not receive that, that is injustice. Justice in that sense would mean protecting a person's right to own and keep his own property. By the way, this relates to the Ten Commandments that says, uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. Because they belong to him and not you. And so we need to have this biblical category of justice, both in the in the penal sense, in the in the in the courtroom kind of sense, and also in the sense of possession and 
uh, ownership of property. We need to have those in place. Biblical justice preserves a person's rights to his own property unless he himself gained it by illegal means, in which case the court or whatever can step in and make that situation right. And biblical justice also says that a person breaking the law should expect to pay the legal penalty for that crime. No more and no less. The crime should be assessed on its own, not based upon the person in discussion. So we need to have that concept of justice in place. It is getting what we deserve, getting what is due to us. So in contrast to the concept of justice, what is mercy? What is mercy? Probably, well, one of the first examples that came to my mind was from Psalm 51. In verse 1, you think of David himself and with the situation with Bathsheba and what he did in, in getting Uriah murdered. David commits adultery and murders her husband and and covers it up and all of this. That's the situation that he was in. That was his sin. That's what he had done. So what does he deserve? Well, murder and adultery in the Old Testament, that's bad news. That's bad news for what he deserved. But this is what David writes in Psalm 51 and verse 1. A psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba, This is what David says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. If justice is receiving what is due to us, mercy would be the withholding of the punishment that is due to us. Or maybe the withholding or the removal of negative circumstances that we have really earned. That is mercy. And God is free to show mercy. David is a a great example of God's mercy that David deserved to be judged. And God would have been right and just to have done so. And yet he didn't. He didn't. He received mercy. His sins were not counted against him. He received mercy instead of justice. God is free to show mercy. And David rejoiced in that fact. In fact, every believer rejoices in the fact that God shows mercy. So you can feel a tension already between these two points about justice and mercy. Is mercy a form of injustice? Is it a form of injustice? Well, it's not a form of injustice. Even though justice is giving someone what is his due and mercy is withholding from someone the punishment that he deserves, mercy is not a form of injustice. The reason is because it's a different category. We have a different category. When God shows mercy to sinners in Christ, He doesn't leave their guilt unpunished. The punishment that the, that person deserves is indeed meted out, but not upon that person. It's meted out 
upon Christ. So he ends up receiving the punishment. He ends up receiving what the sinner deserved. He's the substitute. He stands in there himself and takes that punishment. And so when God shows mercy to a sinner, he's not just saying, oh, we'll just let that one slide. I know you've lived a life of sin and, uh, and, and my wrath is piled up against you, but I'm just going to do away with it. And that's not what God does. He takes that judgment that, that you deserve, that I deserve. He takes that punishment, that wrath that, that we have built up, that is our due. And he puts it on Jesus. So that Jesus pays that penalty in our place. And thus, God can pardon us because the payment has been made. Because there is a substitute who has paid that penalty in Christ. In fact, God punished our sins and our guilt to the fullest extent of the law. And we receive mercy instead. And so this is a great mercy. This is a great blessing to us. But why do we need mercy? What's a man's condition? What is a man's condition? First of all, briefly, we've spent a year and a half going through Romans, pointing out what is man's condition. But Jesus says it differently in in uh, John chapter 8 and verse 34. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, we saw in earlier chapters of Romans, Paul saying the same thing about our enslavement to sin. How we are required to obey it in our natural state that as sinners before redemption that we are enslaved to sin. And the question that must be answered is can a slave set himself free? Or is a slave bound, shackled, stuck in that position? If he could set himself free, he wouldn't really be a slave, would he? And Jesus says everyone who commits sin, meaning a sinner, is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So first of all, he's enslaved. And second of all, he's blinded. What's man's condition? Well, he's enslaved to sin. And secondly, he is blinded. Second Corinthians 4, 4 is a good summary of this, where Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're blinded. The unbelievers blinded and unable to see Christ and his worth, unable to see the gospel. We talked last week about being unable to see the kingdom of God, and that is what's going on. Man's condition is that he's born at enmity with God, at enmity with his very creator, the one who has all power and all authority over him. And that's the condition into which man is born. He's, he's enslaved to sin. He's blinded and can't see, can't understand, can't see the glory of Christ in the gospel. He's unwilling and he's unable to reconcile himself to God. He just won't do it. Just can't do it. 
And so that's the question that Paul asks, going back to Romans chapter 19, where Paul has all of that in mind. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. By no means is there injustice on God's part. Isn't God free to show mercy? Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, another language comment right here. There's a weakness in the English language at this point that both of these verbs in the Greek are active verbs. It's the verb to mercy someone, which means to accomplish mercy for that person, to compassion someone, to accomplish compassion. It's not in English. We, we say he had mercy or he felt compassion or he showed compassion. See, that's kind of passive and distant, but the Greek, it's much more active. He's accomplishing mercy. He's the mercy in God. He mercies whom he will and he compassions whom he will. He accomplishes it. And so English is a little weak in that regard. But he accomplishes it. He doesn't just feel it. I may feel compassion for you and never express it because uh, we left and it was too busy and I didn't, I didn't get to say, hey, I really felt compassion. Or I could feel compassion and just think, you know, that guy was really a jerk to me and I'm just not going to show him that compassion. Yeah, I feel it, but I'm not going to show it. Hold it back. This is different. This is the action of mercying. It's the action of compassioning someone. And that's what God does. Well, can, can mercy be demanded? Can mercy be demanded? No, it can't be demanded. The, the very concept of mercy is that it is freely given. It's not something that you've earned. If you earn it, it's no longer mercy, is it? If you earn it, it's your wage. So someone doesn't deserve mercy. If you're going to say they deserve mercy, you're not talking about mercy anymore. You're talking about what is their due. This is what is due to them. Mercy cannot be required because of pedigree or credentials. Strictly speaking, no one deserves mercy. Either they are righteous and they deserve their just reward of benefit, or they are unrighteous, in which case they don't deserve anything but judgment. So you don't earn or deserve mercy. This is what Paul says in Romans 4, 4. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. It's a different category. The fact that anybody receives God's mercying and God's compassioning work is evidence of God's saving and gracious and loving character. If he were only just we would receive judgment for our sin. But he is compassionate and he is loving and he is gracious. Well, that raises a second question. First of all, who receives mercy? I didn't say that earlier. Who receives mercy? Secondly, who deserves mercy? Well, the definition of the word makes it clear. Nobody 
deserves mercy. God has no obligation to show mercy to anyone. It it should be, and it might be, unnecessary to be reminded of that fact. But, But I want to tell you that very often we forget the initial part of who we are and what we deserve when we move on to think about what God owes us or what we should receive from God. We need to be reminded again and again of what is true about us that in fact God owes us nothing. It's very easy for us, and this happens often, that we want to build our theology, we want to build our understanding of God and of the whole world starting with ourself. Starting from me and adding layers out that I know this to be true and I know this to be true and I know this to be true. And we construct an understanding, a paradigm of all of reality, including theology, including how salvation works, including our relationship with God. And it starts with us. It starts in here. But I want to encourage you that that is a terrible place to start, given who we are, given how deceitful our own heart is, given our own fallen nature. Given, given what we are capable of, that's a, a terrible place to start. That in fact, we need to build our theology based upon who God is and work down from who God is to therefore what that says about us. If I were to build a theology based upon mankind and building up, I look out at you and, and I have compassion for you and I love you. And I want good things for you. And I don't even want you to stub your toe on the way out the door. That'd be terrible. And so if I were to build based upon that, working up from that, well, of course, God must do all of those things to an even greater degree. And so if, in fact, you do stub your toe on the way out the door, well, God didn't want that because I didn't even want it for you. And certainly God would want it for you less. And so you see how we, we begin to lose an understanding of who God really is and who we are in His sight. So who deserves mercy? No one deserves mercy. None of us. We are all guilty before Him. Mankind is not in a position to deserve or demand mercy or any other kindness of God. No one deserves mercy. So thirdly, who determines mercy? Who determines mercy? Mercy. Look at verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It depends not on the one willing or the one doing, me, humans, but it depends on the mercying God. Securing God's mercy according to Paul's words here, very clearly, is not dependent upon the actions of man. And even as clearly, it is not dependent upon the will of man who receives God's mercy. Of all the things that the human will can accomplish, changing its nature is not one of them. Fallen man's will is enslaved to sin. In fact, if obtaining God's mercy did depend upon our will, that would be final tragedy for us because we would not do it. We would not do it. But Paul 
thankfully, says that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So is God free to show mercy? Of course God is free to show mercy. Well, is he free to punish? Is God free to punish? First, I want to ask the question, where is the answer? Where is the answer to be found to that question? Is God free to punish? Where are we going to go to find such an answer? When I'm sharing the gospel with people, inevitably the topic of God's judgment and, and, and righteousness and his wrath and his punishment comes up. If, if that doesn't come up in your gospel sharing, you're not really talking about the gospel because the fact is that all of fallen mankind stands in a condition of, of guilty before God and thus deserving of his punishment and can expect to receive his punishment if they continue on their same course. And so you've got to talk about that. And when I ask people, well, unbelievers... Well, you know, of course they have a category for punishment for like Hitler or someone like that. Charles Manson, you know, really, really bad people. Of course they have a category for judgment for such a person. But not, surely not regular old people who commit regular old sins. Surely there's no category for God's punishment upon people like you and like me. It is much harder to get them to see that God is holy, all the way holy, and that any sin is grievous to Him, that any sin incurs God's wrath. It is much harder to get them to see that than to get them to see that God is loving and God is quick to forgive. That part they're excited about. That part they've heard before, whether they they uh, just thought, thought it up themselves and that's how they experienced their life or maybe they read it on a bumper sticker, but that part is easy for them to understand. But where are we going to find the answer? Hopefully not on a bumper sticker and hopefully not just out of the clear blue sky. And where does Paul find it? Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. Now, we're all sitting in a church, Parkside Bible Fellowship. You all have a Bible in your hand or a phone or something or you're reading off your spouse or something like that. We have Bibles and we know the, the answer is here in the Bible, don't we? This is where we need to go to find the answer to such questions. Not just, not just what seems like common sense, but we need to look into the Word of God to see answers to questions like this. The reason I bring this up is because very often we forget that we have the Bible. And we forget that it deals with difficult subjects and it deals with answers to questions that are very hard. And instead, we wonder and we ponder and we think and we imagine and we use common sense. And it must be we're actually just doing philosophy rather than theology, which is rooted in the revelation of God. And so we need to be reminded to ask hard questions of Scripture. Go to the Bible and ask hard questions. You may have to work to receive that answer. And you may find when you receive that answer that, oh, I, I, I kind of didn't like that answer. I, I preferred the one I had made up in my mind. <laughs> and the Bible's answer is different. But we need to go to God's Word. And that's why we meet like this and, and preach the Word of God. That's why we have Sunday school, which will be starting up again soon. That's why we have Bible studies and you have elders, you can ask these questions who will point you to God's Word 
for how to answer these questions. We need to do like Paul and go to Scripture and say, oh yeah, that's right, Scripture said to Pharaoh and find our answers. The question verse 17 raises in my mind is, what role do God's enemies play? Look at what Paul said. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is speaking to his enemy, Pharaoh, the enemy of God's people and the enemy of Yahweh himself. And he says, I raised you up for a purpose. So what role do God's enemies play? This passage makes it clear. And of course, this is a quotation from Exodus where God makes it clear, Pharaoh, I'm the one who put you in office. I'm the one who raised you up. I'm the one who gave you this position of power and influence. I put you there and I did so for a reason. For my own purposes, I put you into that place. You didn't rise apart from my work. You didn't climb the ladder while I was not looking and I looked and, oh no, there's Pharaoh and he's, he's in position and oh, look, he's an evil guy. God says, for this very purpose, I raised you up. And he says, this, this conversation between God and Pharaoh takes place in, in uh, the earlier parts of Exodus in chapter 9 where he's, the ten plagues are still going on. And God says to him, look, I could have destroyed you long ago. I, I don't need six, seven, eight, ten plagues to, to, show, to show my power over you. But what God wanted to do in Pharaoh, and he says, look, this one's not going to destroy you. One's coming that will, but I haven't destroyed you yet because I put you in place for this purpose. God is upping the ante. God is wanting to make the showdown on a larger scale between Pharaoh, who himself is considered to be deity, and all of the Egyptian gods. And God is saying, get your team together, all of you, and, and uh, you know, make bold claims Become as strong as you can, as strong as you want to stand against me so that, God says, when I have victory over you, the whole world will see it. The whole world will hear about, oh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, powerful nation, and all of their gods were humiliated by Yahweh, the God of the Jews. God wants to raise the competition to a higher level, towards more visible, has more notoriety, where people see it, he is glorifying himself by his victory over Egypt and their gods and Pharaoh himself. And so Paul says, for this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh was raised up not as an obstacle to God. Pharaoh was raised up as one who would be defeated. Here is God's enemy himself. And what does he end up doing in the end? He ends up, he, Pharaoh, who is God's enemy, ends up glorifying his creator whom he hates. He ends up glorifying Yahweh, the God of the Jews, that he has fought against from day one and said, who's this Yahweh? I don't know who that is. And he ends up defeated. He ends up giving glory to God in that defeat. What? Why does God raise up Enemies, what role do they play? Well, in the end, they glorify the God they have stood against. That's what role they play.
So what's the role of the enemies of God? They end up glorifying him. So why does he punish? Why does God punish? Why does he execute righteous punishment and judgment on his enemies? Why does he do that? This is, by the way, this is the aspect of God's character and nature and his activity, the things that he does, that makes zero sense to the unbeliever. They simply do not have a category for this, that God would want to make his name known, that God would want to make his character known, that God would want to make himself known, to glorify himself. They simply don't get that. They simply don't have a category that God ought to be glorified, that God ought to be lifted up. He ought to be made much of. God does this to make himself known. He wants to put on display for his people what he is really like. You see, he is good and he is merciful and he is compassionate. And we see that in salvation and we rejoice in that in salvation. But he is also just and righteous and holy. And when his character is offended by sin and rebellion, God's just and right response of wrath and of punishment demonstrates that to us demonstrates his justice and his holiness, his wrath, his punishment. And so for us to get a a proper understanding of who God really is in all of his attributes, we need to understand his punishment and his judgment as well. Not only his forgiveness, not only his mercy, but also his justice. He punishes sinners so that his power and glory would be known along with, alongside his mercy and his compassion. And so Paul, his whole argument leads to the conclusion that he comes to in verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This question, this this conundrum, this difficulty was raised by the words that Paul quoted in verse 13, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And he concludes the next paragraph by saying he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. First of all, God chooses where to show mercy. He chooses where to show mercy. Again, we have to remember who we are. Who we are in this story. We are sinful and fallen humans. We are born sons and daughters of Adam, our first father, born in rebellion Against God, we've inherited all of his guilt and his sin and his sinfulness. We are born at enmity with God, fully deserving of his terrible wrath. That's who we are. That's who we are in the picture. That's how we start. But he is free to show mercy where he wills. And so by his free mercy, we who are in Christ have been pardoned. We've had that, that terrible sentence against us that we fully deserved. We've had it placed on Christ instead and we receive mercy. We receive fin- uh, uh, forgiveness. Our penalty has been paid by our Savior. And because of Him, we have right standing before God. We are the recipients of God's mercy. He is free to show mercy where He wills. 
He's free to do that. That's a conclusion to Paul's argument. But secondly, God also chooses where to show justice. He also chooses where to show justice. So he shows mercy. He has mercy. He mercies whom he wills. And he hardens whom he wills. Is, is there any way that Paul's doctrine here could be plainer? Is there any way that Paul could say more clearly that God is free and sovereign and he is in charge of where he dispenses mercy and where he dispenses justice? He shows mercy where he wills and he shows justice where he wills. Paul says, whom he wills, he hardens. So what does that mean? What does it mean that God hardens whom he wills? God's hardening a person's heart does not mean that he takes a good person and makes him a bad person. God's hardening a person's heart does not mean that he takes a person who wants to repent and believe and forbids him to do so. He's not taking a person whose will is turned towards God and just wants to just wants to please God, but God says, no, I'm not going to let you. That is not what is going on. Remember who we are. God is not taking a good person and making him a bad person. God's grace works to restrain the heart of sinners, to keep them from going even further into sin. He's at work restraining them, restraining them, restraining them. And we read three times, remember all the way back in in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says, and God gave them over. They did this, and this was what they did, and God gave them over to something worse. And then he gave them over to something worse. And then he gave them over to something worse. That's a picture of God's restraining work that he might release a little bit and release a little bit. That is God's hardening. What he's doing when he's hardening a person's heart is he is relaxing that gracious restraint and letting them have what they wanted. Letting them chase after the sin they wanted to chase after. He says, okay, I was restraining you from that, but and he gives them over to that. That is the hardening of a person's heart, and that is God's prerogative. Again, it is not God taking someone who wanted to be good and someone who was good and someone whose heart was turned towards God and saying to him, nope, not going to let you. I want you to be a bad person whose heart is turned away from me. That is not hardening. He's simply releasing his restraint one belt loop at a time. That is God's hardening. And he says he hardens whom he wills. So what are we to do with this? What are we to do with this very challenging paragraph? What are we to make of it? God chooses whom to mercy and he chooses whom to harden? Sounds like fatalism. Isn't that just fatalism? Well, no, it's not fatalism and here's why. Fatalism is a belief that an impersonal fate that cares about nothing, that is impersonal, has determined what everything will be. We are talking about the God of Scripture, 
He's the creator of all things. He is holy and good and righteous, and He is a person. He is a personal God, and He loves and He cares. That is who is at work. That is who is at work deciding whom to mercy and whom to harden. And this holy and personal God is not just out there somewhere as a conception, as a force, as as an idea. He took it upon Himself to send His only Son to be made in the likeness of men, to enter into that very place of rebellion against Him, into that world, to bear the penalty for sin. Fatalism is the idea that this is just bound to happen because of the working of the universe, the mechanism, and that's the way it goes. This is the personal creator God of all things who enters right in and was born as a baby and took on the suffering of sin. And he did so in order to show mercy. This is a mercy that he freely undertook and that no one deserved. Just as he freely undertook that mercy, he freely dispenses it where he wills. It is his to give away. And it is his to give away where he wills. And in closing, I want to think about this. It is a good thing for the all-wise and loving God to be the one in charge of dispensing mercy and justice. How would it be if you were in charge of dispensing mercy and justice? If you know your own heart, that would frighten you. Or how would you like to give me charge of dispensing mercy and justice? You should be frightened of that. Or even if collective humanity, if we were going to take a vote of all things to determine how we were going to dispense justice and mercy, how safe would you feel? Is that a good situation? That would be awful. God Himself, who is all good, who is all wise, who is our Creator, who has sent His own Son to be our Redeemer, He is the one. Who determines where he will give mercy and where he will give justice? And so we see that not only uh, would, would we misuse that power if it were ours, but it is good to be in his faithful hands. No, it's not, it's not only biblical. But it is a good and it's a comforting thing for the merciful and wise God of the Bible to be the one who makes the decisions of whom to mercy and whom to harden. This passage is heavy. This passage is also very clear. And one thing it does is require us to rearrange all of our theology, rearrange our understanding of the world, 
and how it works, rearrange our understanding of God and salvation and the gospel, to rearrange it in a biblical fashion to see that, oh, it's actually God who's in charge. And that shouldn't surprise us. And the fact that he offers mercy, the fact that he offers mercy this morning, he dispenses mercy to save sinners. And my prayer is that he will do that even this morning. And I don't know for whom he will do that. Many of you are recipients of the mercy already. But there is no person living who has yet to receive God's mercy that can say he will not receive God's mercy. God has not given us that information. And so we preach the gospel. We lay Christ before you and we say that in Christ there is forgiveness. In Christ is found the mercy of God. Do you want the mercy of God? Turn to Christ. And there you will find complete forgiveness. You will find full pardon. You will find reconciliation with the God who made you in Christ. You will find perfect mercy. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning to minister in our hearts. We often don't like to hear that we are not in charge, that we don't have the deciding vote, that, that that's in someone else's hands. And Father, I rejoice that it's not in the hands of some other human, some other person like me who might not like me and thus might render justice upon me, withhold mercy from me. Instead, it's in your hands. Father, I pray that you would help us even this morning to hear what your word has said. To arrange our lives and our understanding and our priorities and our hearts under these facts. We rejoice that you show mercy and you have shown it so abundantly. And Father, my prayer is for those who don't know you this morning, those who are still on the outside, my prayer is that they would see the mercy of God in Christ and they would lay down their arguments, that they would lay down their hard hearts, that they would lay down their other priorities, their other lords. Instead, they would look to Christ and find mercy in Him, full and complete. Father, we are humbled before you this morning. Thank you that you make yourself known to us. I pray that you would make yourself known savingly to even more this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. After I'm done praying, there will be a family up here who would love to pray with you. Let me read this from Romans chapter 16 in closing. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations 
according to the the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.